From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Anthony Albanese at the weekend announced draft wording for putting an Indigenous voice to Parliament into the Constitution. The Prime Minister is deeply committed to this cause. He told the Labor caucus this would be as important a speech as he would ever make. But getting the referendum through is going to be a long, hard battle. It must be passed in a majority of states as well as by a national majority. Tom Kalmer has been a leader in Indigenous affairs for decades. He's a former diplomat and a former social justice and race discrimination commissioner. And he's now Chancellor of the University of Canberra. He and Professor Marcia Langton reported to the previous government on an Indigenous voice, proposing a structure of local and regional voices as well as a national voice. Tom Kalmer joins us today. Tom Kalmer, we don't yet have detail on the precise model the Albanese government will want for the voice, and we're not sure how much detail we are going to get, but can we start by talking about what a voice to parliament would do? Why is it desirable, given that we have now some 11 Indigenous members already in parliament? Yeah, thank you, Michelle. And can I start by by recognising that we're you know, on this broadcast coming from the Ngunnawal country here in Canberra and pay respects to their elders. Um, yeah, look, and, and also that uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Marcia Langton and I have done a lot of this work together. And so, you know, what I express is, is what she has also encountered and, and I think uh, we share uh, common views on that. Uh, there's been a lot of commentary around, you know, are, are the 11 members not representative of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think the first thing that we've got to say is that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't always speak with the same voice. And uh, we all have different experiences. We represent different demographics and so forth. So we can't expect that the elected politicians, be they Aboriginal or or Torres Strait Islander, uh, are going to be able to give a view uh, for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The second thing is that Uh, we have to recognise that they have been elected by their constituents and some of them will have, um, you know, reasonable numbers of of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander constituents. Others may have very few in their uh, their region. So, you know, we've got to, uh, they're elected, I should say, so we've got to recognise that. I think that they will be able to present a view uh, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, but that's not necessarily the view that's shared by the grassroots. And that's why um, we cannot always rely on on, on these um, politicians, which is different to, say, New Zealand, where, where they started off with a Maori party, and that was an, ele- an election to dedicated positions for Maori only to represent the views of Maori people. But in, in Australia, we have elected members of parliament who represent their constituents and and that's a significant difference. So until we get dedicated positions specifically to talk about um, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, we can't it'd be unfair firstly to to put it on the elected Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members. But uh, secondly, you know, I think they would also uh, feel very uh, concerned about being labelled as the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when when uh, they aren't. They all give a perspective 
and we respect that. So what would the voice do? You know, look, the voice, when we come to the national voice, and we're talking about the Australian Constitution, which is an important one, which really um, uh, controls federal legislation. And so at the national level, the, 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 the voice group um, will look at federal legislation, Commonwealth legislation, um, and it's, it's, it'd be from what I could uh, uh, ascertain, it'll be all about new legislation that has an impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, either directly or indirectly. Uh, that's their prime purpose uh, when it comes into the parliament as a bill. Um, so they, they'll have the opportunity to comment on it. Um, but I think over time, what we envisage is that uh, the voice group will, uh, even at the very beginning of the conceptualisation of a new bit of legislation, they'll be able to work with the bureaucrats in, in providing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective to that bill, so that by the time it reaches Parliament, a lot of the issues might already be, be sorted out. Um, and so that's, that's the way they'll go. And once that relationship with Commonwealth agencies and departments uh, starts to mature, um, hopefully that the, 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 those um, uh, departments and agencies will work with the voice group to look at their existing policies and programs. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the big challenge. And the real big challenge is that the majority of effort that goes into Indigenous affairs in Australia at the moment um, comes out of the states and territories. So, so uh, we've got to understand that, that when we talk about the voice through a referendum uh, to changes to the Australian Constitution is only about Commonwealth legislation and not about state and territory legislation. Of course, your report envisaged regional voices. Uh, do we need voices at that more local level to complement the voice to the federal parliament? Um, definitely. I think what, what um, Marcia and I and the other 50 members of our co-design groups, um, and we did this through consultations across the nation. Um, we we um, had probably uh, over nearly 9,500 uh, interactions with both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and the non-Indigenous community um, to get their views about what a voice might do and what, what sort of role it might play. And, um, and there were quite a number of written submissions as well uh, in that process. And, and uh, very clearly they, they said to us that, uh, yep, we, we support uh, a national voice, but don't forget um, us at the local and regional level because that's where all the action takes place. When we look at you know, education, employment, health service delivery, all of that takes place under a state or territory jurisdictional level, uh, supplemented by funding from the Commonwealth, but, um, but it's administered through the, the states and territories by and large, except for only a small, small percentage of, um, of other programs that are Commonwealth run. So, uh, you know, we, what we proposed is that at two, that, you know, that there is the, the, the voice to Parliament, which is very important for us to have a say on Commonwealth legislation, and there's a lot of that. And, you know, Commonwealth legislation, things like the, the Race Discrimination Act, um, our Social Security legislation, native title, but a lot of these are already there. But if there's an amendment to these acts, that's when, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be consulted and uh, through the voice process. And so it, it, it then becomes, you know, a, a mandatory or, or a, a, a process where they're consulted. Now, the important bit is that it is consultation. It is about 
giving an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person's perspective of that new legislation, but it has no other authority to veto or to, to direct um, you know, politicians on how to think. This is only an advisory body and to make comments. So we have formal input by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into legislation that most affects us. Now, this has been something that's been going on for quite a number of years now where governments are recognised that, that it's no longer satisfactory that they develop policies or programs, but we talk about policies because that's legislation, um, uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people without involving us in that construct. And so, you know, that's, that's where it's going. So this is a part of a progression that's been building for quite a number of years now, and, uh, and it's an important one. And it's had uh, very widespread support from within the, the, the political structure, as well as um, through a lot of informed um, uh, members of the Australian community, you know, the business groups, the, uh, the groups who have been involved in reconciliation and so forth. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's gained a lot of momentum and it's something that people don't uh, and shouldn't feel threatened over because it's not something that's uh, going to direct anybody or veto anything. It's about, uh, you know, uh, having a respectful relationship uh, and, and uh, seeking the views of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Of course, uh, one could argue that really the voice could intervene or, or give advice on any piece of legislation yes. because almost exactly. everything affects this group. Mm. Yes, no, that's, that's exactly right. But when we look at it, there are so many pieces of legislation that pass every year. Some will have a, a, a significant impact. Uh, some will be very specific to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Others will have an incidental impact. And so, you know, the voice group will have to, uh, have to, to make some decisions, yes, about that and what's, what's in the interest. Because one of the things that we've got to be very conscious of is that um, uh, once the, the, the voice is established, that secretariat is established at the national level, um, you know, there will be consultations through various mechanisms. If, we, if, if the government, and, and that's both the federal and the state and territory governments, uh, are minded to establish these regional groups, as we're proposing, they could be the, um, you know, the inputs and they can do the canvassing of the membership and push that up to the national level voice. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, it's, there's still a lot of work to go on this, but, you know, in, in, in the theory of it and, and what has existed on and off over the years, um, you know, we, we need to just uh, consolidate that effort and, and uh, you know, the, the parliament of the day and into the future needs to have some um, resolve to keep the process going. And, you know, we've had in the past too often uh, changes of governments, changes of ministers who also want to change programs and uh, for whatever reasons. And um, often, um, you know, that, that has a detrimental impact on, on the people most affected because they don't they can't keep up with these changes and sometimes those changes aren't always informed um, by, by what's happening on the ground. So, so this is a very positive mood, uh, move and, uh, and I think the mood is out there for this, this type of change. Now there is an argument at the moment about whether the detail of the voice should be released before the referendum or kept for afterwards. What's your yeah. feeling on that? Well, I think the, the first thing is, and we've seen this uh, from the Prime Minister talking about, you know, what the question might be presented uh, through a referendum, which is very important. And I think we, you know, the, the, the detail um, really does have to be worked out. Um, 
and then while while Marcia and myself and our co-design teams came up with what we think are, are very workable um, um, arrangements at both the, the national uh, voice level as well as the regional level um, and that's been very much informed by by all the consultations we did um, there's probably still once once we get a reaction from government uh, of the current government the previous government accepted our report um, and but you know they didn't uh, after accepting didn't have long in in um, in power before we saw a change of government and and we're just uh, really waiting to to get some um, advice from the Prime Minister and Minister Burney about um, you know what what in that report you know is acceptable do we progress um, what we're doing and then um, we've got to test it already we've seen states and territory governments uh, are very positive in their response to what we're proposing but it hasn't gone down um, uh, to any further consultations with the community although the report has been public since December last year um, we've still got some time to go uh, before you know people are formally asked to respond to that and so that's the level of consultation so I think we don't need to have a fully blown program um, or structure ready but we need to have um, you know some idea about what what it's going to be but particularly what it's not going to do um, so that people can't feel threatened that it's uh, um, you know going to take on a certain form when, when you know you can rule out some of those pretty quickly. So are you saying that we need before the referendum vote a broad model? A very broad model, yes. And, and, and a model. Yeah, but, but a, a model. And, and the model is, okay, uh, this is a national level um, and that's with the voice to parliament, um, but there needs to be these other uh, regional level arrangements. And, and, um, and all you know, the government needs to do, I think, is to is to agree to that and then the dialogue can start with the states and territory governments to to um, build up what form it might take. But you know, none of this is coming out cold because in every state and territory they've already got some form of arrangement and, and this is really about saying how do we how do we maximise the impact of the current arrangements, give them a secretariat, um, give them some guidance and support and and make it an inclusive body because at the moment, a lot of the discussion that the government's having, and we saw this through the, nas the national agreement, is with the peak bodies, uh, peak Indigenous bodies. But we also have many Aboriginal trusted on the people who aren't members of Aboriginal organisations, and they are still rightfully should should uh, have a role to play and have an input in in the services. So. You know, I think that's got to be tested a little bit more. So to be clear on these regional bodies, you, mm -hmm. you're saying that the voice needs to have regional bodies, but there are already some organisations at regional levels yeah. who can be adapted yeah. and brought yeah. into that structure. Yeah, and you know, whilst the the report that we did, the final report on the co-design process, is is a public document and and is available by just going through, uh, you know, uh, the voice niaa.gov.au website they can uh, people can get a, uh, access to that and have a read of it you know even if they just read the first you know 30 or so pages I'll get a good idea about what we uh, what we presented to the previous government as well as uh, noting that that has been informed by consultations across the nation and they were very comprehensive consultations and uh, and and we just reflected the views of of uh, what people have said so there's from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective, there's a very strong view about what needs to happen 
and 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 what needs to happen now, not in three or five years hence. Um, uh, it needs to happen as soon as possible so that we can make sure we address some of the issues. And and particularly, you know, we've talked about the Close the Gap campaign since 2006, but we haven't had stable government policies and effort um, in those intervening years. It's been, you know, stop, start, um, you know, the states and territories have been on board and, and then their, their enthusiasm's waned and there hasn't been a lot of coordination. But the voice and the regional voice um, creates that opportunity to be able to consolidate on that and have people working together. And just as an example, uh, Michelle, we, as we went around to the communities, we heard story after story from the community representatives that, that um, you know, and, and I, I recall in the Torres Straits on Thursday Island, they talked about 37 different agencies coming into their community, um, all wanting to consult with the Torres Strait Islanders about what their needs were. And, and you know, people keep on saying, this is what we see as priorities, what we see as the needs, and housing was the big one. And yet they still don't get an address because, you know, the, the Commonwealth government has a role, the state government's got a role, local government's got a role, NGOs have got a role, but none of them work together. And so this new regional structure that we're proposing creates that environment and, and the structure where, you know, um, that there'll, there'll be one consultation, um, and this is what people said, where, where they will work with the governments to determine the priorities, but the governments shouldn't all walk away. They need to work together to work the, out the resolutions and how to support it and how to work with um, Aboriginal trusted Islander people. How do we get the, the business sector to work with us? And, and look, the business sector is pretty keen and they've already demonstrated their level of support to this uh, direction that we're taking. Now, looking at the politics of this, how do you rate the chances of this referendum getting through? You wouldn't want to um, test it against all the ones that haven't got through in the past. You know, only 88 out of the 44 questions of the past have actually got, got, got up. But, um, you know, in saying that, I think that there's probably a, a level of, of awareness in the community now. We did a lot of work uh, through Reconciliation Australia and the Recognise movement a few years ago to help inform the community about what a referendum means. And, and how they can get involved and they should get involved in the referendum process. And that was when the, the, the expert panel had, had um, made a proposal to government way back in, was it 2017 or something like this? It's a, a long time ago. Uh, no, it might have been even earlier than that. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and it just doesn't progress and they've always been working on what, what will the question be to go to, to the people about recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in the population, uh, in the, in the uh, constitution. And you know, we still can't even get that one uh, up off the ground. So look, a bit of effort is needed. We, we seem to have a lot of positive attitude. There's a lot of um, you know, commentary out of there that I think could be addressed pretty quickly if, if the government comes up with, with some of the, the parameters on which we're looking at, and that is the national level as well as the local and regional, uh, what what form the local and regional might take, without being too prescriptive, because they have to be developed with you know as, as a as a, um, a partnership agreement between um, the states and territory governments, the local government, the Commonwealth government, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's not one or the other; they've got to do it as a partnership. We're ready for it from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, perspective. We've been calling on this for you know, for years and years. And, um, 
and yet we've got to get government across the line, uh, all all levels of government, and and um, you know, and some of the uh, you know the the, the negative uh, commentary that's around there is just not informed, and and if they you know any any of the 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 people who have got a concern, if they go and look at what's in what what what's in our report, not to say that the government's going to pick it up, but what they can hear is what. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have said, and and you know, and, and I'll point out one person, and that's Chris Kenny, who who was on the co-design group with us, um, and and when he, as he went through the process, he went out to communities, heard what the communities were saying, you know, it 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 helped him form his current uh, opinion and recognises that this is not a threat, this is something that's going to to really complement and and to uh, help progress. The, the advancement of Aboriginal trusted on the people, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in an environment that uh, hasn't always been conducive to us being able to advance. And, and you know, the key thing is, um, you know, we, we look at, at health as one of the key indicators of, of progress. And, but then, you know, and what I said in the, in the 2005 social justice report was that if you look at health as an issue, you've got to address all the determinants of health, and that's things like housing, employment, education. Um, get those all right to make it conducive to people enjoying good health. And we now got a situation where we have seen progress, and Aboriginal trusted on the people are getting older, and uh, and now we've got an issue that we didn't have as a, as a big issue, um, you know, a decade ago, and that was in aged care. So now we've got Aboriginal people who are going into that aged care bracket, and so you know these things have got to be um, got to be addressed much sooner than later. Now, just talking about getting people across the line, and for our listeners, I should explain that Chris Kenny is a prominent journalist who works for the Australian and Sky News. But what about the opposition? Do you think the opposition can be got across the line? Because if it can't, the referendum has a very high chance of failing. And we do know that a, a new opposition Indigenous senator, Jacinta Price, is very against the voice. Mm. So where do you think the opposition will land in the end? Well, I think that, you know, if, if someone like um, Senator Price were to have a read of, of um, you know, our final report and just have a look at the level of consultation that, that's uh, gone on with Aboriginal trusted on the people, the issues she raises are no different uh, than what have been raised by Aboriginal trusted on the people, and that's why we've we've talked about having this dual structure of of the national voice, which is the dealing with federal legislation, and the regional structure, uh, so that these priorities for the region, and they will vary around the nation, um, uh, region by region, as to what the priorities are. Often they'll be common, but there'll be other other ones. Um, and they'll be addressed at the local level. And that's what bureaucrats have got to do. All the government departments, that's their responsibility to look at programs. And, and one of the key principles that we had in, in uh, the work that we did, the co-design work, was to say that um, the voice would not be usurping the role of any existing organisation. Um, it'd be about partnership, it's about capacity development, it's about inclusion. And, uh, and it's also culturally led. So, so um, and, and gender was a really important one. And, and you know, as Aboriginal trusted on the people, um, you know, since since 2008, with the forma formation of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, um, we've had gender equality 50/50 um, 
since that time and, and it's working and it's permeating across many other Aboriginal organisations. So we're in fact ahead of the game um, in doing that. So we, we do bring you know, um, a perspective of all the community. So, yep, um, for Senator Price and anybody else who, who might have a, um, you know, a counter view uh, and, and don't believe that they should um, support the, the, um, the referendum, I need to understand that, that, you know, A, their support would be valued, but um, they also need to know that if they are representing their constituents, and that's what senators and members of the, the House are, are, um, are elected for, then it's the constituents' view that they've got to take notice of, not their own personal views uh, on these matters. But the solutions are already there and in better working, um, uh, working together. And if we can bring the three tiers of government together, and if we can get all the mainstream departments like, if we look at just the Commonwealth Government, we're looking at maybe only 20% of the funding for Indigenous Affairs comes out of the Indigenous Specific Programs. The rest of the money comes out of mainstream. 80% uh, of, of money that goes into Indigenous Affairs at the Commonwealth level come from mainstream departments. So that's, that's who we've got to mobilise. We've got to get them on board. The Attorney General's environment, um, you know, uh, education, health in these these sort of guys um, all have got to work together and so that's part of what I think and you know we think that the voice will will be able to achieve not you know the day after the referendum but but after a very short time uh, it will because it will be an inclusive body it's one that that everybody has talked about uh, a cooperative relationship and and some of that was happening um, you know if we look at the close the gap campaign and the, the uh, statement of intent that was developed between the, the Commonwealth. We signed off in, in, in March 2008 with um, uh, Prime Minister Rudd at the time and, and um, uh, Minister Roxon signed on behalf of the Commonwealth and Brendan Nelson was the leader of the opposition. He also signed off on it. And that's a cooperative relationship between the government and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. So, so this is not new. This is, the newness is that it's gonna go into the constitution and, and that's a safeguard you know, as much as anything. And, uh, and it's also a recognition that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first peoples of this nation. Uh, well, predates 1901 and, uh, and predates 1788. And, uh, and so it's just uh, recognising that in the constitution. And it's the safeguard that, that um, you know, we won't have, have a situation where we've seen in the past where, where um, you know, acts of parliament can, can um, defund or close down, um, you know, a public office. Um, so there's, you know, there's a safeguard there. But look, we hope we'd never have to use that safeguard. That that, uh, you know, as Aboriginal trusted on the people and all the ones who I've worked with and and have seen, um, you know, have had an input in here, are very confident that that we could work cooperatively with the parliaments of the day, and that's the, both the. The, the federal and the state and territory parliaments uh, for the betterment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, you know, that's our prime goal, is the, the betterment, the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to address, um, you know, what we haven't been able to meaningfully address in the past. And, and you know, there's, there's, it's not doom and gloom, but um, let's, let's harness the, the, you know, the, the advancements we're making and, 
and help to accelerate them. So you know the spokesman, the opposition spokesman on the area, Julian Lisa yes. well, yep. and he is, I think, seen as generally sympathetic to yes. this push, but it's still going to be a fair way to get the opposition to support it, surely. Well, yeah, I think they're going to have some challenges. I think uh, Julian is up for it, um, and, and other members um, who are who have been supportive and, you know, um, in, in the past we've had the, the close the gap, um, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, parliamentary group here and, and that was a cross-party group who looked at and understand about um, the issues around closing the gap. And so, you know, it's those sort of people who, who are the majority uh, who will be able to see it through. You'll have a few outliers, but, you know, I think if, if they are... Uh, seriously interested in in the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and Australia as a nation and our standing as a nation globally, then you know they'll get behind this. It's, there's no threat to it. You know this is this is just you know good good business practice if nothing else. I just want to end on a couple of specific things that have been happening uh, just in recent weeks. One is we've seen the Northern Territory government in bans on alcohol in some communities. And also we've seen the federal government moving to scrap the cashless debit card. What's your view on those two moves? Well, I think, you know, um, you've got to go back to the origins. And um, uh, the origins of both were under, uh, you know, that, that stemmed from the, the Northern Territory Emergency Response uh, legislation, which is the, the, um, uh, the intervention legislation. And, and so... You know, that was heavily criticised because of the way that the government of the day had suspended the Racial Discrimination Act and uh, initially until they were sort of um, forced to, to um, reinstate it or, or, or uh, lift that suspension that they had. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and so they were pretty draconian uh, measures in many ways because it's one of these ones that's a blanket program. And so what it did at the time, and I was Social Justice Commission and did a lot of writing about this, um, was it took away uh, a lot of, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, responsibility that many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities were already managing. People, communities did manage the, the sale of alcohol um, around those, those communities. Uh, at the time, we argued that, that you know, alcoholism is... is um, you know, is a health issue. It's not a judicial issue. It's not something that you can intervene with legislation because, you know, if, if you have an alcoholic tendency, it doesn't matter what, you know, legislation might say, you've still got to address that, that uh, uh, dependency. And so all it did was to drive issues underground and, and it um, disempowered people and communities from, from managing their own lives. And it's something we would not expect uh, of, of other members of our population. And at the time, I remember, you know, there were exemptions given to, to um, you know, grey nomads to be able to go into the same lands where it was, uh, you know, uh, restricted uh, or, or banned for Aboriginal people, but they were able to go, go through and um, consume alcohol or recreational fishermen and, and these sort of matters. And so what we were actually doing was creating you know, a division within the nation when we should have been bringing it together. But, um, you know, we still, it is still an issue that we have to address and that is the health issue related to alcohol consumption. And, and all the, 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 the business that goes 
uh, with with uh, you know dependencies, be it alcohol or other drugs, and um, uh, you know we, we've got to address those as health issues. And and you know there's there's a lot of good cases that we cited. Um, you know one of the ones was at Fitzroy Crossing, uh, where the the people up there controlled the sale of of full strength alcohol in takeaway and just had light beers being able to be sold. And just through that one small community driven uh, approach, uh, they were able to reduce um, you know, presentations to, to emergency wards, to people being fined. Uh, Justice Reinvestment is a great example of, of uh, community driven um, initiatives that address some of these issues um, you know, around health and keeping uh, help, helping to curb, um, you know, juvenile crime and other crime. Um, people who are, um, you know, who didn't have licences, who end up getting caught for driving without a licence uh, or driving an unregistered vehicle and, and then, you know, presented a couple of times. Or women, um, you know, who were the highest level uh, or, or growing, the highest growing level of uh, people being incarcerated. And that was for the non-service of of um, community service orders or paying fines and so you know they're locked up for that and you know we've got to address it in different ways and that's why you know what we've now got is a reset in lifting the bans on on alcohol and and also the cashless debit card because um, that again was imposed uh, but before the cashless debit card we had centre pay and and I recall in Alice Springs, uh, there are over 900 people on Centrepay, and that's where somebody on a benefit can get their rent taken out, uh, their rates getting getting taken out, um, you know, being able to make higher purchases and pay them off as they go. And so, you know, they, they were, that's, that's people taking control of their own lives. All of them were, were suddenly put into this because they were on a benefit, Put into the cashless debit card, so they couldn't run their own lives, and so, so this is a redress. It doesn't mean that you know you stop it and and just hope for the best. We've got to stop it, but put other initiatives in to help community grow, and and that's why one of the key principles of what we're proposing is about capacity development, and you know it's about self determination, but it's self determination with support initially until people can can get in their own own two feet. We've got to remember that. You know, many people have suffered through through um, dispossession of land, of culture, not being able to speak language, um, you know, the intergenerational traumas. And this all exacerbates some of their behaviours, uh, which then leads into sort of other, other either dependencies or, or crime. And so, you know, and what we're saying is that let's work together as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We know um, that these are issues. Uh, you know, we're not always proud of them, but we want to be able to work with governments to hear us on how the solutions are going to uh, going to work. And I think, you know, in the longer term, and we saw this in the United States with justice reinvestment, that if if you empower the community um, to work on these programs, we will see uh, big improvements. In, in, the, in the States, they've been able to shut prisons down and release people from prisons into work programs or, or other health programs. Um, you know, to address their addictions, which was the big, one of the big ones over there. They got people into jail, um, and so you know, they're, they're the they're the sort of programs we want to address here. I think, and and there was a, a great report um, uh, led by Justice Matthew Myers called the uh, Pathways to Justice report that I know that 
you know, the previous, well, George Brandis as the Attorney General actually, um, before he shot off over the UK, had commissioned that report from the Australian Law Reform Commission. And, and um, you know, I was uh, fortunate to be a member of that advisory group. And, and, you know, we provided a great report back in 2017. And it still hasn't seen the light of day, but Minister Dreyfus has indicated that there's something that he'll look at. But, you know, again, there was another one that had the solutions in there that, that um, you know, how we could address some of the, the issues around incarceration and, 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 and against justice. But, but um, yeah, look, I think there's, there's plenty we can do. And um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there's many leaders out there who want to get on board and, and move this along. We're stifled because governments haven't quite caught up with it. And, um, and, and you know, some of the bureaucrats are very good. And, and I think the process that we used through, excuse me, the co-design process relating to the voice, as well as within Commonwealth Health, they developed the, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan, which is also a co-design between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and peak bodies, as well as uh, the numerous government departments. We're seeing big differences already. So, you know, these, these, are, these are very positive. They're easy and, and we should just, you know, commentators need to get informed about, about these issues before they go shooting off and um, making ill-informed decisions because that's not helping us as a nation and it's not helping Aboriginal trusted honour people. So, you know, we're always welcome. I know Marcia and I were always keen to talk to, to groups, um, you know, and, and, and work with the, uh, the government of the day to, to progress this, as are the 52 members, uh, the other 50 members of our co-design group. Uh, who are, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people from a broad range of sectors um, in the Australian community. So, so this is not just an Aboriginal movement. This is, this is a well-informed and, and cooperative movement by, by um, interested people. Tom Kelmer, thank you very much for talking with us today and uh, in the months of debate about the voice that are ahead, I'm sure that many people will be listening to your voice and those of your Indigenous colleagues as well. And that's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with you again soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.